I'm not a big Facebook guy. One time, my, one of my friends joked that the only time I post is when I say thank you for the birthday <laughs> encouragements once a year. <laughs> but I do appreciate from time to time taking a look at uh, the pictures that might pop up or the memories that pop up maybe from five years ago, from seven years ago, because the things that pop up remind me typically of some, some family time together, some uh, family vacation that we took together, together, a birthday party, some important moment in the life of my children. And these, these pictures bring me a lot of, of joy, put a smile on my face. Often, that's what remembering the past does. It, 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 when we see and we remember the past, it, it sort of spurs us on for the future. In other words, when I see the memories of the past, I want to be with my family. I want to create more memories. The past is connected to the future. As we live life right now in the present, remembering the past is powerful. Deuteronomy has been called by many scholars the book of remembrance. Moses, in this book, is essentially preaching three sermons. Sermon 1 starts in our text today in verse 6 in chapter 1. He's preaching three sermons, and he's preaching to the next generation of Israel that, that are just above the Dead Sea, just across the Jericho, to the east of, Jer- of Jericho, across the Jordan. Jericho's there. The promised land is ready to be taken by this next generation. And Moses is there, and he's preaching three sermons to them, preparing them to take hold of what God has promised. That first generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they died in the wilderness, having rebelled in unbelief against God. The second generation is posed to claim the promises of God on the edge. And so Moses the prophet, Moses the preacher, preaches three sermons. The first sermon begins today, and the first sermon really expands from verse 6 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4. And it's a sermon of remembrance. It's a sermon of remembering the past. Because remembering the past, about what God has said, about who God is, about our own sin and mistakes, and how God has been faithful in the past, those memories of the past impact the future. If if we want to move forward into the future, We must remember the past. So, 
As you take your Bibles and turn to that place, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and find verse 6. And Moses is going to be, begin the very first sermon. You find out in verse 5, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, quotes, and now we have sermon number one beginning. And guess what, he, what Moses is going to do? He's going to start with the very words of God himself that were given to the people. And he takes them back to the past, and he's taken them back down south, down south to Mount Sinai, where they received for quite some time and, and, and stayed there at Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, same place. They received, and they were equipped, and God downloaded the law, and they were there for well nigh a year. And they were prepared, and now... Moses reminds them, let's go back 40 years ago. You were there on Mount Sinai. The time has come. God is speaking. He's saying, now, go. Take hold of the promises. That's where we're at in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 6. Let's read just verses 6 through 8. Moses begins sermon number one, the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, saying, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors and the Arabah and the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. We'll stop there. Moses' first sermon to them and to us is captured around this theme. If you want to move forward into the future with the people of God, you must remember the past. And today we're just going to focus on verses 6 through 8. The first and most important foundation for the entire book of Deuteronomy is what Moses brings to the people, poised to take the land after the failure of the first generation. He reminds them, he's, he reminds them of what happened in the past. And what God said 40 years ago is just as true and just as good for them today. The promise has not changed. God has not changed. Take the land. And so he says, remember, remember, you have to move on the promises of God. 
This is what he's saying to them and to us. Remember, you have to move on the promises of God. If you're taking notes on the outline, that's your first point. You have to move. Look at verse 6 again. The Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. So the first words out of Moses' mouth are the words of God, and the first word before we get to the direct speech of God is the name of God, translated here L-O-R-D in capital letters, Yahweh. Using the covenant-keeping name of God. The God who has set His love upon a people and has made promises to them. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God. God has set His love upon this people. You say, can God stop loving this people? Can God stop loving me? No, you know why? He never started loving you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And this God speaks. It's a personal God. It's our God. It's not a God or the God. or It's our God. And he speaks to you. He spoke to you 40 years ago to your mom and to your dad. These words ring true for you today. And this is my translation. And he said, enough, abundant, For you to stay at this mountain. In other words, the time of preparation is over. It's time to take the promised land. It's time to move. These are the promises. You have them. I'm going to repeat them to you right now. You have to act upon the promises. We must move upon the promises of God. Yes, you know the promises. You must act on the promises of God. Look at verse 7. Here's the call. Turn. He says, you've stayed long enough. Verse 7, turn and set your journey. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country. In other words, move. Turn is an interesting Hebrew word for the idea of decision and resolve. Move upon the promises of God. And go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So God says, go, take the land. Now they're down south at Mount Sinai, and it's about a, a, a horrific 11-day journey to the, from south to the southern point to the entrance of the promised land. It's an 11-day journey, and they are to go. They are to set out, and there's a call for action. Now, the promises of God here are certainly going to be fulfilled, right? But they hadn't been fulfilled yet. Right? They haven't been. They are fulfilled through action. 
The promises were certain but unfulfilled, and as one scholar said, quotes, there could be no rest until that potential was a reality, end quotes. So go and take the promised land. Go and take it. It's been promised to you. Take it. Now, this land here is a huge area of land all the way down south in the Negev. If you have a map, you can look at it sometime all the way up north to the Euphrates River, to the edge of the sea. It's an enormous region of land, as Peter Craigie says well, quotes, virtually all of Palestine and Syria are included by these terms, an area larger than Israel ever possessed, in fact, even during the reigns of David and Solomon, end quotes. Remember, Israel, Moses preached, Remember the past. You're going to have to move. You're going to have to move. You can't remain static. Christianity is a life of movement. Christianity is following Christ. It's action. We have to move. But we have to move because we are stayed on the promises. We move precisely because we are resting and confident in the promises that God has made. That's verse 8. Take a look at it. See, I have placed the land. Now he says, get going. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land, which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. Set your eyes, that word for behold is the idea of look. Look at these promises. Believe in these promises. The verb tense for God, I have placed the land before you. And the idea of uh, the Lord has sworn, the Lord has placed. It is a perfect tense. It's, it's been settled in the past. In this sense, 40 years ago, God has done it. It is as good as done. It has ongoing re- relevance right now. This is God's promise to you. It's certain. He's given you the land. Move. Go in. Possess it. The land that was sworn. And they are reminded, even in this passage in verse 8, This is the land which God has sworn, same verb tense, to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and to their descendants after them. And just running through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are to to remember, and they would remember the past. They'd go not just to the past of 40 years ago, but they'd be thrown back to the promise made to Abraham. They'd be thrown back to Abraham's sin and failure with the kings of Egypt and his wife. 
they'd throw, even be thrown back to the unbelief with Hagar. And yet the faithfulness of God and the barrenness of all the women would God keep his promises? It was impossible. They laughed at it. They scoffed at God. And they'd remember the good and they'd remember the bad, but they recount the promises made to God. And they would hold on to them and believe that God has been faithful in the past as they remembered God's ultimate faithfulness in spite of sin to Abraham. God's faithfulness in spite of sin to Isaac. God's faithfulness in spite of sin to Jacob. They would remember that even when it seemed impossible, with sin and unbelief and failure and barrenness and all of that, still God kept His promises, even working through the sinful acts of His own people to accomplish and fulfill His promises for His good. Your sin for 40 years is not the end. He has promised. Act in faith. Move forward in faith. Remember the past. Failure and faithfulness of God. It's incredible. All that is packed into these verses, really. Now, this is so important for this book of Deuteronomy that from the very beginning, the whole book of Deuteronomy is built on the unconditional promise made to Abraham. That's where he goes in verses 6 through 8. This is the foundation promise that, that is going to be underneath the renewal of the Mosaic covenant that we'll find in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I think it's helpful to see that. So keep your fingers here in this passage and go back to, to that place in Genesis chapter 12. This is the foundation promise for the whole book of Deuteronomy that God wants them to remember. So let's go there, take our time here this morning and try to unpack this. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make a great nation, make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and, I, and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then go to what Bobby read in Genesis chapter 15, just a couple pages over, find verse 4. This promise a few years later is reiterated in Genesis chapter 15. Then behold, verse 4 of Genesis 15, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, and he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? It's always the question that we ask, O Lord, I believe you, but how am I going to know? 
Well, the text does say that by faith, Abram grabbed hold and believed in the promises of God. And he did not act in unbelief, but he went forward in faith. As the writer of Hebrews picks up on in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. His faith obeyed. His faith moved. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So we are called to move. They're called to move, Israel in that day. They're called to move, but they're called to move based upon the Word of God, the promise of God. And that is always the order of it. In the book of Deuteronomy and everywhere else in the Bible, including in our own Christian lives, we do not move and do stuff and move in order to secure the mercy of God. No, no. We don't perform in order for God to make a promise to us. No, we have received mercy, and so we move, right? We love Him because He first loved us. We don't perform for God to make a promise to us. No, God makes promises to us, and by faith, we move. And as we move in the power of God, the very promises of God, then are fulfilled in our lives. They are not fulfilled apart from movement. So many promises have been given to us that are yes and amen in Christ. Why won't we move? Why are we so afraid? Why do we lose hope and fall into despair so easily? I was reflecting this week, going to a pastor's conference with a preacher named Nicholas Ellen. And he sort of unpacked an answer to that question for a period of time. Why are we so disappointed? And disillusioned with our lives? Depressed? Well... I think oftentimes it's because we, we don't understand the Word of God. 
nor the God of the Word. In other words, one of the chief callings of a pastor is to sort out the promises for the people of God. What is really promised to us in Christ? And what isn't? Is it health, wealth, and prosperity? Is it a perfect marriage? And I think oftentimes we get confused on what God has promised in His Word. I mean, has He promised freedom from trials in this life? Disappointed expectations. I think much of this dynamic underlines the entire narrative of the book of Deuteronomy and the fear that paralyzed the people of God from moving upon the promises of God and paralyzes us today from acting on the promises of God. Oh, we're acting all right. We're scheming, we're planning, we're we have our life, we have our dreams, we have our expectations. And often I think we get disappointed. We're not really reflecting and connecting and asking for God to rewire our thinking, our prayers, our lives according to His promises, and so that we would live under the promises, we'd act under those promises, and marry under those promises, and work under those promises, and work in our neighborhood under those promises, and do our business under those promises, and all the things that we're doing, that they would be, they would be filled out under those promises, safe there, moving under those promises. We just need to know what God has said in His Word. So I want you to take your Bibles and keep them in Deuteronomy, but I want you to turn to the book of Philippians. And I, I was just so over, overwhelmed by this because I was trying to come up with promises and there was like 704. And I'm like, this is silly. So I just stuck with one book, the book of Philippians, as I preached through it. And I won't cover even a third of the promises in the book of Philippians. Turn to Philippians, it's page 1,174 if you have a Bible from the back. Just consider some of these words, starting in verse 3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Oh, there's the memory again. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel. From the first day until now. Oh, oh, Paul. Oh, Paul lived his life under the umbrella of the promises of God. He moved and he was happy for the participation in the gospel, whatever was done under the umbrella of those promises. And then he says, For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
That's a promise. And, or we could go over to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, For to me, and also to us, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I mean, that was a steadying influence for Paul. I don't really care what happens to me. If I die, I'm with Christ. If I live, it's to your growth. Or we could turn to Philippians 3.20, which says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It's promised that our body will be transformed into conformity with the body of his glory by the power of Christ. That is a promise made to the people of God. Therefore, be stable. Stop being anxious. Stop fighting. Stop. You've got it. Your citizen is set. Your stability flows out from under the great promise of God. Which brings another promise out. Let's just move down to 4, verse 5. It gets more practical, as Paul always does, (laughs) towards the end of his letters. He says this in verse 5 of Philippians 4, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. That's a promise. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a promise. A promise that leads to contentment in any and all circumstances through the power of Christ is where he ends the book of Philippians. So that we can say... Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. These, that verse 19 is a promise from God. Now, In the book of Deuteronomy, we will see time and time again fear cropping up as an enemy to faith in the promises of God. And I would just say that that is why Deuteronomy is a sermon. It is exhortation to live out and to grab hold of the promises of God. And that is truly what, when we come to the Word of God in our 
devotions, when we come to the Word of God in the time of hearing the Word of God preached, we are basically trying to rewire our thinking so that we would think God's thoughts after Him, what is true, what is right, that we take false thoughts about who we are and what God has called us to do, that we'd see that they're lies from the enemy and we'd put them to death and we believe the precious promises of the gospel in Christ. We grab hold of what is true and we would live in light of them and then we would move, we would act in faith upon the promises of God. That is really the Christian life. That is really the life of all ages for the people of God. Knowing what the promises of are, believing them, and having that faith work and take them to the bank and act upon them. So, Brothers and sisters, the first part of Moses' sermon is to remember to move upon the promises of God. We've got to move on the promises of God. That is the mechanism for our Christian life. Faith works itself out in love. Faith in the promises and the God of the promises leads to action by the power of God. So, really what we need is more faith. And so, I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to reflect now as we remember in this first In Moses' first sermon, remembering the past, I want you to consider that this promise made in Deuteronomy, and if you're not there, go back, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, is a promise, is God's word, and this promise made by God is a sure thing. Okay? It is a sure thing. It will be accomplished. And I think if we can take what I'm about to do and then apply these these undergirdings to the promises of God and the faithfulness of God, I think that's going to build faith. And I think That's going to kill fear. And when faith is on the fly and fear dies, we're freed up to move and to act on the promises of God. So, let's go back then to this fundamental promise, the Abrahamic promise, because the whole book of Deuteronomy is built on it. Yeah, it is. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'm sorry, let's go to Genesis 15, back to that passage. And let's take a look at how sure this is. How certain are the promises that have been made to Israel that are yet to be fulfilled in real time? How certain are the promises made to us in the gospel 
that are yet to be fulfilled in our time. Just how certain are they? That brings us back then to the Abrahamic promise. So let's pick it up then in verse 6. We know the promises um, that God had said that he would have a son and would come from his own body even though he was super old. And, and eventually um, the people would be like the stars of the heavens and that's what their descendants would be in verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Verse 7, pick it up. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? I think it's a fair question. I don't think he didn't get struck down for that question. He just said that he believed God. I think that question comes from faith. So I'm going to give us all the benefit of the doubt today. Does the question come from faith? How can we know that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, that they will be fulfilled? Well, here's God's answer to Abram's question. Oh, Lord God, how may I know? Verse 9, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him. So God brought all these to um, uh, uh, Moses. Um, sorry, Abram bought, brought all these to God and cut them in two. It's kind of a gross scene. Animals split in half and separated apart. And laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. It's a bloody mess. You see it? Night is falling. After Abram asked this question. For verse 12 says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. So, now... The sacrifices, the sacrificial animals are, are cut in half and separated in a row. It's gotten dark, and God continues to speak now. Now, by the way, Abram right now is asleep. I love it. He isn't doing anything. He isn't contributing nothing. He is asleep and God says to Abram in this context this. Now watch what he says, verse 13. He says this to you about the promises of God. Know for certain. How may I know? Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Here God is prophesying Egypt well before it happened. And the exact time frame, 400 years in Egypt, by the way. Think God's got it figured out? But I, verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. That's judging Egypt. 
and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Yeah, they plundered the Egyptians. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here to the land of Canaan, where Abram was sojourning. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, they're going to go in and they're going to exterminate the Amorites who are sacrificing their kids to Molech. And God says, judgment is not ready. You will be the hand for judgment. I know what I'm doing. 400 years will pass. So when you go in, your activity of dispossessing the land in Cherem, in, in judgment, will be my act of judgment on the people of Canaan for their sin. I know what I'm doing. I got the time frame down. It's going to happen incredible. Well, how can we be sure that it's going to take place? The people of God are such a mess, and they got to move in this whole thing. Someone's got to move. Pick up the sword. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 17, it came about when the sun had set. Okay, so now it's dark, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces, the pieces of the slain animal lined up, walking between the split animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates to the Kenite, to the Kenizzite, to the Kadmonite, to the Hittite, to the Perizzite, to the, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So what God is doing here, and what this means, and this is how certain His promises are, the smoking oven... The flaming torch is like the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire by night. It is the Shekinah glory of God. It is the presence of God. So, Abraham doesn't do anything. He's asleep. God, God, the Shekinah glory, passes between the pieces of the animals as if saying, may it be to me as these animals if I do not keep my promise. I will fulfill my promise. Abraham was asleep. God cannot lie. God himself does the work. I will keep my promise. And somehow the work is the glory passing through broken and bloody animals as a symbol. I will do it. You're asleep. I will fulfill the promise of a great people. I will fulfill the promise of a great land. I will fulfill the promise of a great blessing extending to the nations. But 
mankind. The lesson of Israel is this. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't keep the promises in your own strength. You can't do it. I must do it. You're asleep. May it be to me as these animals if I do not fulfill the promise. And you know what the shock is? That's what happened. The cost it took for God to secure his promises was the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, as God has a way, took upon the cross of Calvary all the punishment for the broken law of God and consumed that darkness and terror the judgment of God fell upon Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is true that the God-man had Genesis 15 happen to him in order to fulfill the promises in your place as your substitute. God found a way. And this one would pass through death, but he came to the other side He conquered sin, he conquered shame, he conquered fear, he conquered death. And I'm telling you, if he did, and he came out the other side of that row of slain animals, and he came out, right, the glory of the cross, the Shekinah glory passing between the pieces, and he came out alive, and if he is alive, and if he is seated, and if he ever lives to pray for you, that your faith would not fail. How certain are the promises? How certain are they? No, all the promises will be fulfilled. So we must move now. Sisters, brothers, church, It's time to move. It's time to sort out the promises and the preferences. It's it's time to come underneath them. And we need to move, not in confidence in our own abilities, not in confidence in our own leadership structure, but it's necessary because we've got to move. We've got to move orderly. We've got to move. We've got to manage. Come on. None of this is in violation of the promises of God. We've got to move, but we move based on the finished work of Christ based on the promises of God who cannot what? He cannot lie. And I want to close by having your eyes set on this passage from the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6 and find verse 13. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. I think immediately you will be in the context. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 6. The author of Hebrews writes to a group of Jewish Christians that are about ready to give up. It's too hard. All of their expectations have been dashed. And we desire, verse 11, that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise, the promises. Now keep reading, look at verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, to that split veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God has promised. Jesus has died and was buried and is alive again. The promises are yes and amen in Christ. Remembering can be really powerful. Brothers and sisters, remembering the finished work of Christ is powerful. So let's move. Let's move. And we'll find out next week. Let's strategically move. And take possession of all that God has promised to us in Christ. Father, we are astounded at just how 